welcome to the Art Guide Australia podcast with Tiani Mikus. For this episode of our ongoing artist interviews, I spoke with Agatha Goeth-Snape. Agatha has a vast practice across many mediums, and even she struggles a little to define her work. Most recently, she was commissioned by Caldor Public Art Projects for the exhibition Making Art Public, 50 Years of Caldor, which is currently showing at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. And for the exhibition, Agatha created Lion's Honey, an ongoing performance work where each day one person reads to themselves in the gallery space. Agatha and I spend much of the podcast unpacking the story of how this work came about, and it's a kind of wondering but ultimately special conversation. And like with Agatha's art, she just has this way of moving the conversation into such interesting areas. So even though we talk about Lion's Honey and how she came to art making more broadly, I feel like what we really get is an insight into how Agatha thinks about art. Thank you, Agatha, for talking with me. Your work is dispersed through so many different mediums and avenues of thinking, and I thought a good starting place would be to talk about a current work. And you've been commissioned by Caldor Projects to create Lion's Honey. Could you perhaps start by talking through those performances? So there was a documentary made about John Caldor, and it was called It All Started With a Stale Sandwich. I guess it was a documentary about Caldor Public Art Projects and their activities over the last 50 years. And anyway, when I was first pitching some of my ideas to John Caldor about what I should, they invited me to pitch some ideas for the 50th anniversary exhibition. And I kind of quite naively said I was happy for the documentary crew to film while I was pitching my ideas. So in this film, which I didn't, I hadn't really understood that was a possible outcome of saying yes to something like that. In the film, they've captured these incredibly vulnerable moments where an artist is pitching an idea to someone who I guess has some forms of power in relation to the artist. So you see me in the office trying to sketch out my proposal. And, you know, at the time, my proposal was very amorphous. It was almost like gaseous. It was only in articulating it to John did I begin to even, I mean, I I gave it a name as I was speaking. I didn't really know what I was saying until it was spoken. And it's it's just so incredibly quite shocking to, to watch that. Now now that's become like a a really major part of this film and to, to watch it back and to see those moments of vulnerability but also of the space between the ideas and the ideas forming and the really the space of relation between me and John and the negotiation of that, and that includes all those orbiting negotiations of power and gender and history and all the different spheres of contemporary art. And, I, gosh, I was – to see that, I, I, for one, I can't believe I let them film me. And then I, I can't believe then I had to watch it back on a giant screen, which was so confronting as well, just even to see your face so big. But the reason I'm telling this story is because it really – it was both the seed of Lion's Honey, the work I ended up producing for the project, but also when they were filming, I was like, I wish I wish I could tell the documentary crew about how even in their act of filming, I was creating a reality, like I was creating a fiction even in their act of filming, you know, this cinema verite type of handheld footage of the meeting. I was like, I'm creating this pretty much because you're here watching <laughs> and in the same way, as soon as I start the interview with you, I'm like, oh, it's so those disarticulations or half-articulations are so 
just I think there's so much information in the space as well as the whatever I'm doing when I'm trying to make sense of things. <laughs> but it does seem as if it's the extra things around a work that interest you as much as the work itself. Like you're saying, even with this interview, we've had all of these interruptions and immediately I can just tell that you're as interested in talking about this interview as much as doing the interview. Yeah. And, and that seems so embedded in your practice, you know, it's work that's often commenting on work as much as being a work in and of itself. I think it's work about, it's already so much. Just if we took this instance, this moment as an example, meeting you here on Skype and understanding we're both bringing these whole worlds of information to this moment and this moment is so immediate and direct in that moment of knowing you're recorded I'm like this is already it it's already happening and I think when I work with Brian Fawad one of my very very dear friends and also someone I've made work with for a long time it's that presencing like that like it's already we are already inside it it's never something outside us it's never something that we you know look inside that moment don't turn away and try and create this other narrative over to the left or over to the right, deal with the complexity of this moment. Yeah, and I think you're right. Maybe maybe that is, maybe a lot of my work does that or maybe I'm always like freaking out half about that and then trying to like make the work as well and they really haunt each other, those two states. So if your work does have this internal story, I guess to get us back on track, what do you feel is the driving impetus or story of Lion's Honey? So with Lion's Honey, I wanted that interior world to really drive the work. And I was so interested having worked with John and got to know John and trying to understand this commissioning process. It's not institutional commissioning, it's like interpersonal commissioning, like this old model of a philanthropist asking an artist to make something, you know, a very good idea. And I wanted to find a way to take that into the work, take that interpersonal dynamic between me and John into the work. Maybe this time I'll start not at the end point of the work, but at the beginning point, John had invited me to make a proposal and I had made a series of proposals which he hadn't hadn't seemed right to him or he hadn't, there'd been events that meant that those proposals didn't manifest. But then finally, I was, I was really at the, I, I, I describe it as the edge of refusal. I mean, and it's a very privileged position to be at the edge of refusal of a commission in any case and for anyone. And but I didn't feel like it's like I had to keep coming. Like how I was like, how deep does this resource go that I can just keep presenting different iterations of ideas to this philanthropist or benefactor? I'm not sure what the correct term for John is. This person. So we were sitting at the art gallery, John, and at the cafe at the art gallery, John and Emily Sullivan, the curator at Caldor. And John was very sick. He's been under so much pressure in his 50th year. I think there's been a lot of like output for him. And Emily as well as the curator was exhausted and. I was just feeling quite over it, really. I was literally trying to find a way to say no, um, <laughs> which I think is so hard for me. That's one of my big challenges. And at this kind of precipice of refusal, John, with his tired face, he said, Agatha, let me tell you this story and thought, okay. But he started describing this story, which I'll, I'll try and recount to you now, if that's okay. Yeah, I'd love to hear it. He said, I've been reading a book at nighttime. I read it last night. And it was a book that David Maloof had gifted him. And he said, it's the story of this very, very strong man. And the man is so strong. He's the strongest man in the universe. And he wants to get to this, the other side of the desert. He wants to go from his village to the other village. The other village is on the other side of the desert because there's a girl there. This girl is so beautiful. But the desert is very dangerous and it's very hot and it's very dry. And, and John was, he couldn't really, he said, you know, that village on the other side, he, he's not really meant to go there, this man. 
but he wants to cross. And he said he's crossing the desert and it's very hot and the sun is burning him and the sand is in his eyes. And But his desire to get to this woman is so strong. And Emily and I both, you know, if it were immediately in this in this other world that John was, this virtual world that John was describing to us. And because John was tired, it had this, you know, it was it had this lethargy to his retelling that was so evocative of this state of crossing the desert. Eventually, he said, and the, and the, this strong man came upon a lion and the lion reared up to, to kill him. But the man, the lion was nothing to this man. The lion was no impediment to the man's progress. And the man tore the lion from limb to limb and it was nothing to this strong man and the man went to the village and he found his girlfriend and then John couldn't really remember what happened to his that there in the in the village and it was kind of this foggy kind of you thought that was the climax but then he was like so he had to back across the desert and he was crossing the hot desert in the desert so hot he had left his girlfriend the village had rejected him and he came upon this lion that he had murdered but by now the lion's body had decomposed and the flesh was rotting off the bones of the lion and the skeleton of the lion was exposed and in the ribcage of the lion these bees had made a very productive beehive and so in this kind of house of the ribcage there was all this honey dripping from this beehive this golden sweet honey and Samson scoop shoot and John was like oh no he had to shoo away the bees shoo bees shoo bees (laughs) and Samson who it turns out this story is about Samson from the Old Testament put his scooped his hands into the beehive and scooped out handfuls of this rich golden honey. And this moment, this imaginative world that was happening inside all of our um, brains kind of switched into back into the cafe and, and John reached out across the table and said, Agatha, take the honey, take the honey with his hands. And, you know, it, to me his hands were dripping with this honey. And, and I didn't know the Old Testament story of Samson, I must say, and I didn't know why John was recalling it to me, but this story with all its kind of visceral sweetness and this idea that Samson in murdering the lion somehow then felt responsible for the honey as if the honey was his gift to give. So it was this very complicated situation. Really what I have begun to think of is a very thick situation that moved between these interior spaces of like the book and John's imagination and John's retelling of it and the context of the art gallery sitting in the noisy cafe, surrounded by viewers of art and the staff of the art galleries sitting next to Emily. And suddenly this image really became the starting point for the work, not just the image of the book and certainly not the story itself, but this moment John offered to me this handful of honey in this effort to I guess, distribute his resources, saying, Agatha, take this opportunity. And it's not that I accepted the opportunity, but I I accepted the image that had been created in that moment as a very rich and fertile and generative starting point for the work. And then inadvertently, of course, his persuasion for you to do the work ended up being the impetus for the work. Absolutely. And, you know, I said, as soon as he finished the story, I said, John, I wish I'd just videoed you telling that story because that would have been this work. You know, also thinking through why they, they were asking artists to respond to the archive and what that means to respond to the archive. You know, what is it to ask artists to handle this material? And I certainly didn't think I wanted to enter the archive through the archive. I wanted to enter the archive through John. So then what happened is John, sorry, I'm dart, I'm not really darting around. I'm just on the track. John gifted me the book. And the book is this book called Lion's Honey. It's by David Grossman, who's an Israeli author. And the book is fine. But as I said, it's not really the book that interests me. It's the space the book opened up for both of us. So John gave me the book and he said, I'd still like this. 
So he's like, so we're good to go. I'd like to hear your good idea by Friday. And it was Wednesday. <laughs> I went home and I, the next day I went to the studio and I thought, well, I can't, there is no starting point really until I've read the book. And somehow I was like, well, how did I get back off that precipice of refusal to being in my studio reading a book? And I read the book and it took about five hours and it was a very focused reading. And I thought, gosh, it's been so long since I've entered this space of allowing a book to pour into you and pouring yourself into a book. And I thought that is a gift. Like even though I've been compelled to do this by the situation, I thought just this five hours of reading. Also, I guess since I've had a child recently, it's hard to find those spaces that would normally be dedicated to reading novels or engaging in books that you, you know, that your work doesn't lead you through. Anyway, and I thought that, gosh, that alone is an incredible gift. I was like, how could I distribute John's resources so that I was like, I want the work to be about this moment of reading, but I want to somehow also stop the capital, like this circulation of capital returning to John's beehive. I wanted to find a way to distribute and disperse that incredible resource John was offering me. And not just not just into my capital as an artist, not just into something that I was benefiting from. So I thought, how could, could I could I disperse that? Could I offer that to other people? And the image that really made sense to me in the reading of the book was that Samson had seven plats. It's not until the kind of whole book is the riddle about what Samson's strength is derived from, and it is ultimately his strength is made manifest in these plats. And it's not until Delilah cuts off his plats in the final climax of the book that he loses all his power and so this idea of these plats these threads of knowledge these threads of resources being somehow discontinuous to Samson became again like I guess the structure of the work so the readers to me are kind of plats that ultimately once they they're given this time to read whatever they want that knowledge is somehow dispersed in a way that goes beyond the reach of John's hand as he goes into the honey it's like something that can go beyond that circulation of capital so that's a pretty incredible story and what interests me is that all of that had to happen in the lead up for a work where people sit and read to themselves in a gallery is that unfolding is that quite typical of your work especially the way that it ends up being almost quite stripped down Uh, absolutely and I think the work ends up looking quite austere and very simple and direct you know the work is one person per day from 11 to 4 occupying the gallery reading a book to themselves the book is of their choosing their task is to enjoy and be paid for this time to read but you know like John's gift to me the gift I then give to these readers in the act of engaging them is so conditional as well and I and I talk to them about all of this in their interviews and the workshops we do it's so conditional upon all the frames and context that I am then placing them in like what is for someone to sit in the Art Gallery of New South Wales if that place is hostile to them or represents a history that is that has enacted violence upon them? What is it to ask someone to be present in a space that doesn't necessarily recognise their selfhood? The gift that I then give, like John's gift to me, is ultimately conditional and is based on exchange. Like, And so much of that complexity and that, like, what is it I am actually asking these people to do? What is this performance is so important to the work. So I think even though, again, as I say, the work manifests very simply, it's underneath this, as I always say, underneath this thing is another thing and underneath that thing is another thing. And each reader was so, they are just the most incredible group of people. And even how how we found the readers is another beautiful story. And it's like just all these, the complexity proliferates around this work. And I think that's why I'm so satisfied by it. This, this idea of gift 
giving of John giving you a gift and you passing along that gift. In the past, you've talked about, because a lot of your practice has this kind of suggestive quality to it. It's certainly, you know, it's like the opposite of didactic. And you've talked about that as being a kind of offering and that you don't, with the viewer, you don't want to encroach any more than just simply offering. I mean, do you think about the relationship to the viewer in terms of a kind of gift giving? You know, I'm a viewer too. We are all viewers, <laughs> you know, like, and as a viewer, I appreciate when I see art, something as specific as art, I appreciate that potential <laughs> opening between me and the object, me and the author. And I know it has to start somewhere, like there has to be, there has to be an offering for that to happen. And that offering has to have its own internal integrity and logic. But I guess I really have trust in the reader or the viewer that they will, what will be, will be like, they will take something or not. And we are in a, you know, in that moment, there is specificity, but we are also in a, a series of moments, which is a, the arc of a lifetime and the arc of at whatever particular history we find ourselves in. And I think any singular viewer's apprehension of something at any particular time is by its nature specific to that moment and people will take or leave what they need at that moment. And like, it sounds like I'm just like going for the very big frame, but that really does govern my understanding. I I reflect upon how much work changes for me over my life as I look at it and come back to other artists' work. And I think and also all the all the different contingency, contingencies that may make you ignore or obliterate an artwork before you understand it or after you understand it or that, that what might make you love an artwork and then four years later not or what might speak to you and then is suddenly mute to you. And I just read the other day this beautiful quote from the poet C.A. Conrad. Do you mind if I read it? <laughs> they say, going back to the reader, I trust them. When I learnt that every reader was going to have their unique perspective on my poems, I could then ignore the reader. Not ignoring the reader because I am dismissing them. No, quite the opposite. Ignoring them because I trust them completely and have faith that my work will speak to what it needs to speak to in them at that moment. And I think I just I think that is so maybe it comes from my faith in art. I don't know. <laughs> like my faith in the reader, my faith in the viewer, my faith in art that art you know, I'm, I, I don't. I don't enjoy looking at work that's telling me what to think or what to do, and I and I certainly don't enjoy making it. What I enjoy is being completely, deeply embedded within my internal logic and the world of the making and the complexity of the making and the complexity of the relationships that arise out of that. And then from that, something quite articulate or small might manifest. And I hope that that little thing has resonance for some people <laughs> some of the time. Well, I think it certainly does. But can I change topic a little bit and get us back to a different beginning? I'm aware that fine art wasn't your first vocation and you initially studied performance and improvisation. Why did you first go in that direction? So I did a degree in performance studies, which I guess it was the late 90s. And I knew that I was interested in performance. And and I also, my my parents are artists and they really didn't want me to be an art. They didn't really encourage me to go to art school. Can I ask why? They, I think they just thought boring. <laughs> <laughs> like don't, don't, you don't have to do that. Like there's other things you can do. Um, just as in there's other things you can do other than be an artist or you can you could be an artist without going to art school? I think art school is not the thing that manifests you as an artist, you know. 
what other types of knowledges can you go into? I mean, they both went to art school and, uh, I mean, they didn't even. I think art school, I think, can be quite, especially because this is going to sound, uh, artists teach at art school. <laughs> so I think um, it can lock you down quite quickly and it can be quite, it, despite all its attempts at openness, you can get into a groove there, you can get into a model. And I think they were like, that's not necessarily what you need to do. But they also were like, if you want to, you can. And I ended up going when I was 26. But, you know, what I really, what has really been most valuable was doing performance studies and Australian literature and um, philosophy and in, my, in their arts degree. And also going to act, I went to acting school at the VCA for six months before I got kind of kicked out. And um, I was reading about that and there was, you said something once where you said you got kicked out and you weren't good at acting because you couldn't surrender. Yes. It, they said that I couldn't, they could see my brain was always assessing the, the context of the situation. But I think that's fair enough because I just done performance studies where we actually did like deep, you know, thinking through how different acting techniques reflect on different topologies of the self so you know I'm there like going oh my god this is you know like I I was too they didn't think I had could integrate that reflect reflexive reflective side of me and that full presence that I needed to to be there it was it was heartbreaking but it was it was kind of (laughs) it was so dramatic at the time but now I think oh that's okay (laughs) It turned out okay. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I truly think that all the skills I learnt there in that six months of being in Melbourne was so, I do think they're really valuable even just to have an interview or to be able to speak, to be able to speak is quite hard. <laughs> and anyway, so yes, I did all that because I thought it was, I knew there was something about performance that really, how we are in the world as humans, how we are performing all the time and that really was what I wanted to pursue. And, you know, that is what I've ended up pursuing in my practice. And then there was a decision at some point to go and study painting. Yeah, I think I realised that actually I wanted to get an understanding of art history that was separate to the my lived experience of it. And I understood that contemporary art, see, I didn't, I didn't really understand the field of contemporary art at all. I understood what I'd grew up amongst, which was a very, very particular niche part of Sydney art history. And I could see that. I could see how people behaved in that field. Also, I did sociology at uni. I think it was very influential because I saw everything through this, I guess, Bourdieu's notion of field and habitus and agents playing within this field and accruing forms of capital. Like that became such a, and still is, such a formative image of me, for me, in in how I approached moving into the art world. So I wanted to see the field of contemporary art and I knew art school was where I would be able to do that. And I was so perplexed about why all these little worlds were so separate, like why there was a, why there's like a Sydney school of sculpture and then why in Melbourne that's slightly different and in a different, and why contemporary art in Sydney was so different to that in Melbourne and how, what different parts of like the art world were so um, cloistered to each other, like not available to each other. It all, I think it just really interested me to understand the topography of that field and its inclusions and exclusions and that's really what art school did teach me it got me kind of understanding a little bit more about contemporary art but I still think it took me a long time to even you know from art school I became a director of first draft and that's when I started really having a sense of the field that I was thinking about engaging with. And so how did the text and the language element enter the work? I think it was always very, I just, I only speak English and 
I think the strangeness of language has always really appealed to me. Like it's, I think it's frontality. It's kind of abstractness. I think my grandmother, paternal grandmother was a calligrapher and a graphic designer and my mother was a typographer and my father in a, a lot of his works has used text. And so I was really curious to know what, and you would think like something I knew very well and yet I found it all very strange. I was like, why does that text have a particular quality when you write it in that way? But if you type it, it's totally different. And why if that's laid out in that way, I have a completely emotional, you know, I feel angry and why is why does tone change when you present text in different ways and what is then what is the tone within the text and what's the tone within its presentation and it was just really fascinating to me but on a very it's not like I'm now fascinated in this it's just it was a language that was immediate and naturalized to me but then still strange and I thought well that's pretty amazing and <laughs> weird <laughs> but that lack of total assuredness about what language does it kind of makes me feel almost relieved to hear you say that because there's so many fragments of texts and phrases that you use that I I love but the one that has stuck with me the most and probably because it maybe confused me the most was when you quoted the art critic Robert Hughes from his documentary The Shock of the New and you quoted him for one element of your ongoing work at the National in 2017 and I really genuinely had conversations and debates with people about how you meant that quote. Maybe to talk about this work I need to talk about another work, Rhetorical Chorus, where I think I quoted or used quotation or used the appropriation of quotation or uh, of Lawrence Weiner, another kind of 20th century, what would you say, or just like artist who is, a, <laughs> who is male. So when I hear that Robert Hughes quote or when I hear Lawrence Weiner speak or, in fact, any of the text works he makes, I'm so confused that I don't really understand them. Like I don't really understand what they're saying. And I, I don't know if that's because I'm not that smart. It, it definitely could be. I, of course, it makes you feel belittled when you don't understand something. And I'm so aware that of that, those feelings of vulnerability that happen in, in when we, when we misunderstand or when we, when we can't understand. So with that quote from Robert Hughes, I, I mean, I poured through it so many times and it was like, I remember it when I was, I remember in maths when I was in high school, I would understand everything up to a point and then I'd watch as the equation and all the knowledge that I'd gleaned and all the kind of the different things I brought to the equation suddenly I could I could see it. it just started to all the logic and all the sense started to just disappear as I was kind of holding it in my hand everything just started to disappear and I was left with absolute like an absolute feeling of disorientation and I feel these fragments of these utterances and both both written words and and spoken words of Hughes and Weiner, if I'm just using these two examples, operate for me in such a similar way. And it's like I'm holding it and I'm 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 trying to hear it, but I can't. I it's like it's not strangely, even though the language is quite simple and it's a sentence and it's a series of words and it suddenly means absolutely nothing to me. And then suddenly you're like, no, there's no, there's potency there and it disappears again. And that kind of fading in and out of focus, that's how something can mean something and then just mean nothing, I think, is what interests me ultimately. So why did I quote that? How did I quote that? Because that phrase to me has this fragmentation of sense and f from my own perspective. And then I think about how can words just not make sense? That's what I think. And then when I quote them, when I put them in my, like in the contemporary art frame and people are like, what does she mean? What does she mean? I'm like, 
I don't know, truly. (laughs) (laughs) But can you say if there's – I'm curious as to why you quote one thing and not another. Like is it just something intuitively that grasps you? I think the things that I quote – for instance, Robert Hughes, I really did reflect upon how – much I understood about art through high school, through Hughes. Like all those very, very early experiences of the modern canon were through Robert Hughes's language and eyes. For me, not for anyone else, but for me, those those very primary experiences of when you first understand, um, I guess, those 20th century art movements in that very particular Western-centric, very narrow band that Hughes speaks to, that makes a difference. Like if that is your first experience of anything, that that is formative and that echo is loud for me. And I and I and I want to look at it and think, what what even was that? Like that affected the whole way I understand and perceive art, which I do now. How how do I undo that? How do I examine that? How do I take that apart? And to me, and I know it's very different. Other people use totally different strategies. To me, I take it apart. Other people might look somewhere else, but, you know, I think there's also a thing that's like I'm like stuck in the groove and I can't get out until I get it out. And that quote, it got stuck. It was stuck. Right. Changing topic a little bit. I do have one final question. And you said once that I don't want to make art that is immediately identifiable as art. I'm interested in making things that we don't really know what they are yet. How do you know when you're in the act of creating that you're exceeding whatever art is? I don't think exceeding is the word, but I understand why you used it. Um, When you just first read that quote, I think I was kind of thinking, it's really, it's, it's hard to articulate. So some things I think about my public work here in Echo that's in Weems Lane that manifests as road uh, words in road marking paint that is quite invisible, I guess, on one hand. And then I also think of when we, for that same project here in Echo, when we did performances in public, but um, with Brooke Stamp, that were really very much, really on the threshold of certainly in uh, almost pedestrian in their nature. And I think about when I work with Brian Fawata as Rong Solo, and we're, we're very interested in like that same pedestrian or perfunctory or quality that lets in the world very willingly and breathes out the world very willingly and that doesn't that doesn't reach for kind of the frame, I guess. And sometimes when I'm like, oh, it's it's too, I like I know what proper art is, <laughs> and I just feel like my my work isn't moving towards that often. It's not move, and I know when I do make proper art, and like, and I don't even know when I say proper art, like fine art, like art in a gallery. And it's so ironic because my art it does end up in galleries. But I think the reader reading is a really good example, like. The reader's not even reading out aloud and, in fact, the image that I'm making is not so much about maybe maybe it's more about the situation, you know, like the art doesn't necessarily end in one object. A situation proliferates around it or it comes from a situation and I don't know what parts of that situation count as art and yet I'm interested in shimmering out that frame of art to encompass that situation as well. And that was Agatha Goth-Snape discussing her practice and most recent work, Lion's Honey, currently showing at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and remember you can subscribe to our podcast 
on iTunes as well as check in with Art Guide online or pick up a copy of the print edition to keep up to date with art-related news, articles and features from around Australia.